Oh, a yes. We got a show coming. Uh, the Current Affairs Podcast is doing its first live show on Saturday, January 26th at the Rock and Roll Hotel in D.C. Um, you can find tickets on the Rock and Roll Hotel website or on Eventbrite. It's going to be fun. It's going to be weird because we're weird. <laughs> so there are going to be costumes, live music, more costumes. Nathan brought a volcano with like gummies that will go inside of them. Anyway, it's going to be a trip. Amazing. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. And um, we have a um, <clears throat> special guest with us today. Uh, a hearty welcome to Vanessa B. Um, Hi. Welcome, Vanessa. Thank you. Honored to be here. Yeah. <laughs> We're privileged to have you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it's uh, as we're recording this, it's Martin Luther King Day. Um, which is the day of the the best takes online, uh, the the fi- the finest Twitter uh, and Facebook comments you could possibly imagine. The most recent one I saw, just to, just to pay honor to Martin Luther King's legacy, was um, er- uh, Eric Erickson said that the liberal media was judging the MAGA chud children. Who are yelling at that Native American guy by the color of their caps? So they were basically doing racism against these poor Catholic kids. So, <sighs> cheers to that. <laughs> um, but uh, what, what we actually wanted to talk about today was was you know actually in the actual spirit of Martin Luther King Day and not the bastardized conservative uh, version where MLK would be a Benghazi truther and want to build the wall, um, is the the idea of of white identity and what what that is, what it means to, um, you know, white Americans. And I'm probably similar conversations could happen in, uh, you know, many other countries, but... Uh, basically, kind of want to take a look at a at an ongoing debate that's been happening uh, between, you know, kind of two poles, and I think on on one pole, we'll put this clip in. Uh, there's uh, Martin Luther King, who 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 puts the idea of whiteness, and he tells the story of uh, these these prison guards in Birmingham, and and says that they are being economically victimized, that they are not making very much money, and that, that the only thing that, you know, their wages of whiteness are just this false belief that they're superior to other people because they're white. Um, I always try to do a little converting when I'm in jail. And when we were in jail in Birmingham the other day, white wardens and all enjoyed coming around the cell to talk about the race problem. And they were showing us where we were so wrong demonstrating. And, and uh, they were showing us where uh, segregation was so right. And uh, they were showing us where uh, intermarriage was so wrong. So I would get to preaching and we would get to talking calmly because they wanted to talk about it. And then we got down one day to the point, that was the second or third day, to talk about uh, where they lived and how much they were earning. And when those brothers told me what they were earning, I said, now, you know what? You ought to be marching with us. (laughs) You're just as poor as Negro. And I said... You are put in the position of supporting your oppressor because through prejudice and blindness you fail to see that the same forces that oppress Negroes in American society oppress poor white people. And all you are living on is the satisfaction of your skin being white and the drum major instinct of thinking that you are somebody big because you're white and you're so poor you can't send your children to school. You ought to be out here marching with every one of us every time we have a march. And sort of in a similar vein, James Baldwin, and we'll put this one in too, he says that that uh, 
Very, very interesting argument. He says that uh, what's happened to white people in the South, and I would think probably he would agree a lot of the North, too, uh, what's happened to the, to those white people is in some ways worse than what's happened to the black people there. Because despite all the beatings and Jim Crow and stuff, that the that the moral lives of of you know white Alabama ladies has been poisoned, that people have become monsters. Um, but what is happening in the poor woman, the poor man's mind, is this: they have been raised to believe, and by now they helplessly believe that no matter how terrible their lives may be. And their lives have been quite terrible. And no matter how far they fall, no matter what disaster overtakes them, they have one enormous knowledge and consolation, which is like a heavenly revelation. At least they are not black. <laughs> now I suggest that of all the terrible things that can happen to a human being, that is one of the worst. I suggest that what has happened to white southerners is in some ways, after all, much worse than what has happened to, what, to, to Negroes there. Because Sheriff Clark in Selma, Alabama, cannot be considered, you know, no one is, can be dismissed as a total monster. I'm sure he loves his wife, his children. I'm sure that, <laughs> no, he likes to get drunk. You know, he's, after all, one's got to assume, and he is visibly a man like me. But he doesn't know what drives him to use the club, to menace with the gun, and to use the cattle prod. Something awful must have happened to a human being to be able to put a cattle prod against a woman's breast, for example. What happens to the woman is ghastly. What happens to the man who does it? is in some ways much, much worse. And so that's kind of one poll of the debate. The other poll of the debate is the folks who say that whiteness is a kind of positive interest. And I think uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates is the most uh, prominent uh, ex uh, exponent of this view, which is that um, he, here, from an article, you know, he talks about white solidarity uh in this in an article from 2016 which we'll link here and he says that uh you know in america solidarity among laborers is not the only kind of solidarity in america it isn't even the most potent kind um skipping a little bit at every step universalist social programs have been hampered by the idea of becoming and remaining forever white so it was with a new deal so it is with obamacare so it would be with President Sanders. That is not because the white working class labors under mass hypnosis. It is because whiteness confers knowable, quantifiable privileges regardless of class, much like manhood confers knowable, uh, quantifiable privileges regardless of race. White supremacy is neither a trick nor a device, but one of the most powerful shared interests in American history. And that, too, is solidarity. So that's kind of setting up, you know the debate i think which is very much a live one um you know you see you see folks bringing this up with uh, kamala harris and cory booker you know putting their hat into the presidential ring and um i suppose the first the the the, the first question i'd like to ask you vanessa is you know standing from outside of that perspective what is your sort of gut reaction to that like like um as someone who you know is not like either benefiting or you know is not part of that sort of group you know i i sympathize i think with the argument that Tennessee Coates tries to make um but and i sympathize but i i think it like doesn't give enough credit where credit is due. So I think he's right in that, like, supremacy has a way of, like, working its way into even, um, you know, policy efforts that are supposed to have these universal qualities and sort of lift everyone up together, regardless of their uh, ethnic background. Um, 
and and that we saw that with some of the New Deal programs. But but then you look at that essay from 2016, and it it leaves out like the deliberate efforts to inject white supremacy into these programs, right? It's not like the programs just like magically. It's not like everyone woke up the next day and like made a concerted effort to shut the doors to say black applicants. No, it's like those were written into the laws. And so if we're conscious of these weaknesses, like if we understand our weak points and we understand how these universal programs in the past have been used to exclude people, even in other arenas like say public housing, it's hard for me to understand why when we talk about the future and the potential of these, of reviving these programs, and I don't know why we start from the losing position that, that we will cede to, um, you know, the, to any sort of, of demands to exclude black people or Native American people or, um, you know, other vulnerable populations from these programs. Like, if we're aware of them, why why are we acting like it's a given that mm-hmm. the purposeful exclusion will happen again? So, so I have a, a hard time kind of, it, I don't know, it feels a little, like, it feels a little like a sleight of hand, and, and I don't want to, like, ascribe, you know, different motives to Ta-Nehisi Coates because I think he's he is a great thinker uh, but that's that's just sort of a weak point that stands out to me um, yeah that's yeah. interesting Vanessa because it, it suggests that he thinks unless the primary focus and emphasis is on race specifically that naturally those exclusionary parts will occur. Whereas I I think kind of what you're saying is those things happened intentionally. That was part of like political work that effectuated that exclusion and that, that racism. And so it's not, it is a good sleight of hand. That's a, that's a good way to put it that, um, that Bernie Sanders and his supporters, you know, clearly I think wouldn't purposefully try to have that exclusion as part of the policies they push. So is it then true that it would naturally happen otherwise? Uh, because for me, this debate, I've been trying to figure out if how semantic it is, um, because I think both sides, when they're being intellectually honest, admit that race and capitalism are inextricable, right? So I, I've, I've, lo- I've long tried to figure out, like, what are we really talking about here? What is the actual difference? Is it emphasis? Like, what what, why do we think we're on different sides here? What, and so maybe you've put your, your finger on it, you know? Yeah. The, <clears throat> yeah. I don't, um, that's definitely a good point, you know? And, and I guess historically you can, um, you can point out that like part of the new deal coalition was Jim Crow Southern Democrats, where they were literally living in a sort of terrorist apartheid state where there was no black political representation. And that's why all those structures got built into the New Deal programs, because FDR needed those votes to pass them. Um, and, you know, the, the, the like, I mean, one of the one of the benefits to a like structurally universalist program is that by definition, by by definition, if you can actually pass it, it literally does not leave anyone out. And I think that's a good point to make. I guess um. Oh, Vanessa, yeah. you wanted to jump in there. I, I yeah. There. Did you, did you yeah. want to jump in? Yeah, <laughs> at, at the same, they, these universal programs, I think, yeah, I do think these, I agree with you, Ryan, that that um, these universal programs do have the benefit of, of actually lifting people up and, li- and lifting the standard of living for most people. But I do agree with Ta-Nehisi Coates in that we do have to be, we have to inject race in the conversation. I think that when these programs are um, sort of, colorblind, at least in like the narrative we use to sell them, uh, we'll still end up seeing different results for different people. And I think France is an interesting example of that. You know, I grew up there. I don't have, I'm not a data person like you guys. So I wish I had more (laughs) than just like anecdotal information. But if you take a look at places like, um, like Paris, right? Like outside of Paris, there are all these suburbs where there's like concentrated poverty. And when you get there, in person, like it doesn't take, you look at the numbers and the people who walk around you and it's primarily 
you know, black people, like African immigrants, Arab immigrants. Um, But France, you know, has like a pretty robust social safety net. Um, I think it has, you know, people have much higher expectations from their government. So why are we seeing these ghettos like outside the city? Like, how is it that to that even though there's like less concentration of poverty in France, when you look at the racial composition of who makes up the poor, like black people and Arabs and, you know, increasingly um, Asian immigrants are just like overrepresented. Um, You know, and I think that one of the reasons is that France hasn't had a civil rights movement. It prides itself on being colorblind. I don't think France actually does a census. <laughs> They're very much like that, in the mindset of like, if you're, you know, if you're a French citizen, you know, then it's like égalité, fraternité, we're all in this together. But realistically speaking, that's not how it works out. There are second class citizens and, you know, the standard of living is sort of higher for everyone. But for those at the bottom, it's just much higher. It's sorry, it's much more difficult to make a living. And there is rampant discrimination, for instance, when it comes to employment. Um, And so so I think we do have to be mindful. And for people like Bernie Sanders, I I do think you have to be. You can't you can't like hide from race. (laughs) No. Yeah. And um, I've heard in France, correct me if I'm wrong, I am an uncultured American swine. I, I know like two words in French. Uh, but that wait, which words? When, which words? Which do you uh, know? uh, we and uh, baguette? Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. That, you're, he's a hungry oh, man. man. Cooper is a hungry man. He likes to eat. Yes. Would you like a baguette? Oui, oui, monsieur. Um, <laughs> that's pretty good. The, the uh, the no. Somebody has told me, so I have no idea if this is true or not. But when when they collect demographic data, when the government collects demographic data in France, they, they explicitly kind of forbid, or sorry, when they collect like background data, they forbid the collection of demographic characteristics about race, ethnicity, and so on. Is that, is that true? Uh, I'm not sure. It wouldn't surprise me. But one thing I do know is that in the 90s, when I lived there, it used to be that when you applied for a job, <laughs> so you didn't like describe your demographics on your application, but you had to send a photo. <laughs> oh, wow. That's sneaky. That is... uh... <laughs> what, what was the justification for that? That's crazy. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, so like my mom would attach her like little passport photo with her applications and like, of wow. course, would not get interviews. Because yep. you know Suzanne Jouquet was clearly like an African woman. So this this uh, is t- a bit of a tangent, but this is exactly how uh, the Ivy League connived to keep Jews from taking over all the universities. That uh, back in the day, like applications used to be much simpler, and since there was there was a pretty heavy emphasis on academic achievement back in the like nineteen twenties. Um, thereabouts there was a you know just like tons and tons of like you know sons and daughters of jewish immigrants were coming up and actually just crushing the the sort of wasps at at uh, academics and just making up an increasing percentage of the you know the the uh uh, enrollees of these universities and so they came up with the what is now standard application form in the united states for colleges the essay the doing service and personal stuff and one one way of of uh wow. yeah, that's that's where that all comes from and and one one way of uh one ni- nice side effect of this for harvard yale and princeton was that you could keep you know rudolf finkelstein from you know uh and and bring in like jeff smith who was you know 50 points below him on the standardized tests or whatever um and yeah, yeah, right. It's just like a sort of facially neutral thing, which did not, I think, as you're saying, uh, reckon with, or in this case, was exacerbating a a project of doing bigotry. Hey, Ryan, was facially neutral a double entendre? There was that intentional? <laughs> no. Okay. Just um, checking. But uh, that's no. A- this is a good point. This is a good point. You know, I, I and I wonder, you know. What did you make of the? Do you remember the the Trevor Noah stuff about when France won the World Cup? That it was after 
Africa that won the World Cup and, and kind of there, there was pushback about, um, you know, French nationalism and what it means to be French. And, and so I, it, there seems to be this, this kind of contradiction that, that maybe relates to the United States as well um, about uh, the ignorance of or, you know, pretending that there isn't discrimination and this desire for homogeneity and that it doesn't matter in France um, what your ancestry is, you're French, and to be French is French, and that means one thing, you know. Uh, and same thing here, you could say, right? Like, it's we're all Americans. But that usually kind of occludes actual discrimination, and, and the political work it does usually serves to kind of push against fighting for equality. So I'm just wondering what, what, what you think the connection might be there, or if you think that that's true, right? Yeah, I think the French are mer- much worse than Americans at that, actually. You know, um, anecdotally, I think you can be a person who looks like me in America, you know, and be asked, where are you from? And if I say Chicago, that's good enough for an American. In France, yeah. in my own country, when I get asked where I'm from, and I, like, answer with the French town, <laughs> people look at me like, no, 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 but, like, where are you really from? You know, so yeah. there's just, like, this definite like we're all very conscious of not being white and of course like the you know portuguese origin french people don't get asked those questions that's like reserved for sure. people um so i think america in that way is much better at playing the assimilation game uh but at the same time america is also much more explicit about race um I think that the concept of affirmative action would be very, I mean, I think it would be very offensive to the French government as an Mm. idea, because I think it Mm. would require like really acknowledging these deep, um, these deep differences um, and just like the wide gap of discrimination and outcomes between people in a way that like it's Obviously, affirmative action is under attack in in the United States, so there's like you know a lot of work to be done. But um, but the fact that it even exists just puts the U.S. miles ahead of France, I think. Yeah, yeah. There are at least efforts to like combat the inequality, um, even if they're sort of lackluster. Yeah, I want. I wonder if. So for those on the left who get in these bitter debates uh, during the primaries and other times, um, well, I wonder what might be a way forward to kind of recognize the central role of, of race and the, the tendency for these outcomes that Ta-Nehisi Coates showed, right? Like it's, it's definitely true. I, I mean, some astonishing facts that it's more likely that uh, non-poor black Americans are likely to live in a poor neighborhood than poor white Americans are to live in a, in a poor neighborhood, right? So like there are these, these systemic effects uh, that are definitely racially um, charged, right? And, and so I, my feeling is most likely on the left, there isn't actually a disagreement in interest in terms of serving the needs of those that are disproportionately uh, harmed by by capitalism, but but I wonder what the way forward is to try to um, you know integrate and make allies um, so that there aren't these kind of oppositional perspectives. Yeah, and I think that goes back a bit to the um, the excerpt of the interview with James Baldwin, uh, right? Oh, am I thinking of James Baldwin? No, I think I'm thinking of of MLK. Um, like, how do you get people, how do you get white people to sort of see beyond their own identity? Um, mm. Because, you know, I, the way I, I read that passage from uh, Martin Luther King and, and in a way from, um, from James Baldwin is that there's like this incentive to hold on to your whiteness, you know, particularly if you're like in the middle class or the working class or or the poor, um, you hold on to it because it's like the one tiny advantage you have in life. And it's like, how do you communicate to people that like this tiny advantage is so little, like it's, it's so meaningless in the grand scheme of things. Like you're not even, you're not really squeezing your money's worth out of this, 
raisings and there's much more in it for you to kind of join, um, you know, anti-racist efforts because the benefits to you will be greater. Um, and I don't know if I'm like articulating that the best way I can, but, um, but I, I think that's an interesting question of basically how do you, how do you, um, entice white people to engage in fights outside of themselves. And I think that like immigration in particular raises those questions a lot, you know, like when we, and I think that president Trump understands that too. Like when we talk about open borders and what it means to, um, to open the door to more people, you know, from Mexico, from Honduras, from like the global South, and, like, the first place that, like, the conservatives like to go to is that, like, well, these people are going for your jobs. They're going for, uh, you know, your opportunities. They're going for your public resources. And it's, like, how do we get people out of that that mentality, you know, of yeah, just, like, absolutely. absolute self-protection? Yeah. I yeah, mean, that's I... That's a great point. Yeah, I, I, I think about this a lot, you know. I mean... I mean, probably most obviously, like I am a white male person and and, you know, one doesn't want to ha- to, to think that like that is sort of hey, the Coops, end. don't be so hard on yourself. Don't be so hard <laughs> on yourself. It, you, you you're in, what, everyone's instinctively drawn to something that can sort of excuse your own existence. You know, you nobody wants to be the villain of history. And um, I think that that. You know, that's definitely, you know, sort of just a little innate defensiveness, I guess, as to why I'm drawn to the Martin Luther King view of things. Um, even though it is, you know, it's impossible to deny that in its in, in certain circumstances, at least relative to other people, whiteness and maleness does provide a privilege. But, um, you know, I think as you're talking about with France, the, 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 the way, you know, you if you have a multi-ethnic, multi-racial society, the way to have a sort of collective consciousness of that is to build a sort of identity around cosmopolitan, multi-racial, multi-ethnic, like, you know, sort of way of thinking about things. And to, to not, to, to say that America is good because it has these characteristics and, and is, you know, a matter of historical fact, uh, black people have been in America since the absolute very beginning. Their roots go all the way to the very beginning, much further than people, you know, all four of Donald Trump's grandparents are immigrants, um, you know, and, and of American culture, how much of that is produced by uh, black people or immigrants of various kinds like the, 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 you know, Jewish people who are heavily involved in Hollywood, uh, jazz, blues, R and B rock and roll, uh, so many, uh, poets and writers and such. Um, it's like just a fact of how this country is that it, 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 it is and always has been a very diverse cosmopolitan place. And there's been massive resistance to that. I think of it, you know, maybe as like a sort of family, you know, and it's like the, the, the reaction to, uh, you know, it's like if you have a large family and like you have retrograde social views and it's like, oh, my brother is gay and I'm just going to try to write him off, you know, it's like this, this, uh, this person is not part of my life. Well, that does violence, you know, it may, may in some way privilege me in terms of like inheriting the uh the the family money or whatever but it does violence to me personally it it, it robs me of my sort of like co- co- uh, communion with my fellow citizens you know because the fact of the, that like like black uh as as baldwin says in in that little debate which by the way that that's a debate with uh william f buckley and Baldwin fucking kicks his ass like it's not even close but um this is like the fact of the matter is we've been integrated in this country for a very long time you know the 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 corpses are full of the uh or the the land is full of the corpses of my my ancestors and you know it's it's um I think that that tends to demonstrate maybe the problem 
with with France's way of thinking about this is like if you if you if you have a sort of multiracial society, you can't just pretend as if that doesn't exist and as everyone is equal because then you're just denying reality. But if you try to build on that actual foundation, maybe. So so if I may um, kick in my political theorist uh, mode, I, I just it makes me think. You know, Vanessa's great point and question reminds me of John C. Calhoun, and and you know, Corey Robin writes about this uh, in great ways. And you know, my students often find it miraculous and a kind of a discovery that the Confederacy wasn't just kind of sui generis, a bunch of monsters, mean people. Uh, which in a way, kind of just like the Nazis, kind of makes it just a blip that is just it happens sometimes bad people are in power. No, it was an ideology and a philosophy, right, that was that was like perpetuated. And what happens is you have these ideals of the declaration that say, right, all human beings are created equal. And that's so powerful. And it required a response, like the cornerstone speech by Alexander Stevens, right, the VP of the Confederacy, he says, look, I'm going to be honest with you, basically. If the Declaration of Independence, if that premise that all humans are created equal is correct, we're monsters. We're terrible. Thank (laughs) God, he says. Thank God that's not true because we would be monsters. We would be absolute. I grant you we would be so bad. Thank God that was like the whole speech is like it's the cornerstone speech. It's like that's a sandy. The Declaration is a sandy foundation. We have to make a new cornerstone of our civilization based on the actual truth both the Bible and science teach us that the white race is superior, right? And so just like, you know, you wouldn't want your your dog to be the, your master and it's good for the dog for you to be the master of the dog. Well, naturally, the white race should be the master, right? Of the And so he was literally making a philosophical argument rooted in science and religion to say that they were the good guys, right? This this is a philosophical argument. Yeah. And so like that and the way that they did that. So Calhoun then says, uh, look poor white people or middle-class white people, um, you let's forget about these class differences, you know, cause there's only a small percentage of plantation owners that have like the, the, the bulk of the wealth. Right. So, so let's say, look, you might not have the money, but we're all white. So we're equal. Right. So that, so, uh, Corey Robin talks about this. Calhoun appropriates the, the equality language to say, we're all equally white. So don't worry about our class differences. Right. Because we're all superiors. And so, so like, the divide and conquer strategy is used in order for the rich to stay rich. And so they get the buy-in from people that aren't in the same, right? Like wealth class. So in other words, racism is an ideology to help the rich stay rich, to get the buy-in of other people, right? And to divide and conquer. And this is done in so many ways all the time. This is what Trump does, of course, right? So like that to say that the it, it's a shifting of, no, they're the problem and we're all on the same team. It's the same move, right? That's the same way that Trump is able to make the poor, vulnerable refugee asylum seekers the bad guys or foreign aid is the problem, right? It's it's like a magic trick so that you don't actually look at the rich. So, so you, just, you know, it's just an important thing to see, right? And so if we can identify that for people, that could be the way forward. It reminds me a little bit of the uh, Republicans' response to AOC's um, proposal for a 70% marginal tax rate. And where they're like, they want to tax us at 70%. Sir, who is us? You know, but like all of a sudden, like everyone is talking about we, like we all have $10 million sitting around. It's just pretty clever. Yeah, it's like Joe the plumber. Poor Joe the plumber and his millions. Spreading, yeah, we can't be spreading the wealth around. You never know. We're all just temporarily embarrassed millionaires here. Maybe to just sort of put a bow on this, I think that I think that your your way of looking at this, Alexia, is is I think the most fruitful to to think of it not as like maybe a good or a bad thing. It's like it's kind of fraught and it depends on who you are. It's more about a sort of legitimating ideology. And you can have whiteness, you know, in a way that that, you know, and it's like it, like in the case of the slave South, like for everyone except the planter class, it's really terrible. And then you could say, well, New Deal, you know, mid 20th century whiteness, that's kind of a different story is it is actually fairly equal and so on and so forth. But, you know, it's it's at the end of the day, it's sort of a way of allowing people to think about their their themselves and how they relate to others. And you can construct, I think, different ideologies, um, a different way of thinking. 
and you know maybe that that maybe it'll take and maybe it won't but i don't think it's a foregone conclusion either way oh and one final thing actually that i meant to mention earlier that uh uh you know you look at think thinking about the wages of whiteness well one thing we've been seeing for the last two consecutive years is that the life expectancy of sort of downscale white people uh you know people without a college degree basically have been, has been decreasing and it's like unprecedented in uh you know quote unquote developed countries uh since like you know the 1950s and uh you know what what's uh the problem well they're dying people are dying of alcoholism they're dying of drug overdoses um they're there it's it's sort of similar in a sense so not as bad as what happened to russia after the uh the fall of communism you know the kind of diseases of despair and it seems like you could say at least for you know that that particular cohort of white people like the the whiteness thing is really kind of reaching the end of its uh rope in terms of structure in terms of like material payoffs yeah that's that's interesting, Ryan. So so you're suggesting that maybe like the appeal to whiteness as a source of power and privilege won't be something that will work much longer because like just empirically it doesn't anymore. Is that I mean for some groups of people is that what you're arguing or what are you, what are you trying to say? Well, I'm saying that 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 you know in terms of the these like material consequences for people who are living in you know living in society like they're dying you know uh in in vast numbers like seventy thousand people i think mostly white died of opioid overdoses in 2018 i think or 2017 i don't think i've seen the 2018 numbers um and i think you know you could maybe just sort of try to get people to go even further in, you know, get on this sort of like exterminationist ideology. It's like, like here's a white ideology that really didn't work out for a group of people would be like Nazi Germany. You know, it's like, like this, this really, really didn't work out for like 12 million soldiers who got killed by the Russian winter and such. Um, so I, you know, I don't think it's foregone conclusion whether or not it'll sort of like which one will prevail in the minds of the people, but um, it's it's certain the bargain is looking worse and worse as time goes on. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm curious to see how this will all sort of play out in um, you know debates around 2020, um, because I think something that I've seen reactionaries and conservatives like those are synonyms um like what i've seen a lot of people do is say you know people like tucker carlson like there's nothing wrong with being white like we're not you know like we're under attack here for for being proud of our ancestry as italians irish belgians or whatever you know but when like a black person says that they're proud to be black it's fine and why isn't it when we do um and i just feel like it's a huge distraction. And then there's this, I feel like there's a connection being made between like the people who, the people on the left who talk about all the, about having like a more robust social safety net about, um, you know, taxing wealth at a higher rate. Who All these people are part of this coalition that are, um, you know, attacking your identity and, and, you know, and they act like being white is a synonym of being privileged. But, like, look at you. Like, look at the town you live in, in, you know, rural Ohio, where everyone is, like, dying of various avoidable diseases, you know? Like, and and I think the left should think seriously about how to counter that narrative. Like, I don't know. I don't think we can just ignore it. Like, we have to figure out a way to to answer it. You know, and like, I don't know. I've I've seen how like just giving facts to people doesn't work. <laughs> no one That's cares right. about facts, so That's I don't right. know. I don't know if there's a way. For, I don't know if there's like an easy answer, but there has to be a way for us to communicate that like, no one's asking you to be ashamed of being white. It's just that when you say white pride, there's a whole history affiliated with that concept that is very scary to many of us. 
And also, yeah. like, but also we see you. Like, we see your suffering. Yeah. And right. there are answers that are, like, not attacks on white people or on identity. Like, you know, we have, like, a class-based program that will benefit you. And it's part of being, you know, you have to be part of this multiracial, multicultural coalition, you know, to be in and for it to work. But... I, I don't know. I mean, I'm rambling a little bit, but I just think that, like, we've done... I'm not sure the left has done a great job at, like, addressing these kind of sore points for people. Yeah, that's. I think that's a great way of phrasing the problem. And, and for me, at least, it reminds me that... And Ryan has mentioned this in a previous podcast. The, the basic pitch on the left and the right is either an embrace of difference or an embrace of a certain kind of unity and a friend enemy distinction, like to, to invoke like a Carl Schmittian kind of thing, right? Like the left needs to say that we see you, we embrace you not because you're white, but because you're human and because you're human, it doesn't matter if you're white, male, trans. So our coalition is a universalist in the sense that we think there's unity in diversity and we all should matter equally. That's what human equality means. Um, the opposite view says you're only special because of this accidental feature you have, or this, right, you were born with this color skin. And, and that actually isn't recognizing your humanity, right? So, so we're actually the side that doesn't want you to feel guilty for, for the accident of your birth. We're the side that says that no one should be harmed or benefit because of the accident of their birth, right? And so, like, I think there's something compelling in that. Um, and also, the structural analysis, at least from the, the Marxist left, right, is that in the same way that racism and inequality isn't caused by individual choice or agency, neither is it your individual burden that you're white, right? So, like, it's actually the individualist liberal notion, uh, that atomized picture of reality that would ascribe, and this is why certain centrist liberals have the, the white guilt problem, because they think, oh, if I'm just feeling guilty as a white individual, then that's that exp expiates my sins, and that's all I need to do is, is feel bad about myself. No, it's a structural fucking problem, so it's not you it's like the the whole history that has produced these results that you can't that we collectively need to recognize and do something about right yeah i mean i agree with you but then sometimes you know, it is it, <laughs> or, or <somebody. laughs> it's usually ryan it's actually usually ryan i think that it'd be i'd be surprised if we could make us make up for um past wrongs, you know, wrongs that were like committed on a systemic structural level without, without creating programs that pay special attention to like people's accidental characteristics. So, oh, they should, they totally should, but that I has know, nothing like, to do with guilt. Can we have it both ways? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the... do you see what I'm saying? Like, of course, of course we should like, I, I'm all about the reparations. I'm all about that. But like, I think where most of the resistance comes from is this, it's actually like a spiritual notion of shame or guilt yeah. or something. Okay. Right? I see what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, Brie has yeah. a, Brie, Brie Joy, who, um, you know, is on the staff of Current Affairs with me, has a great article about that in case your readers are interested about how far shame can get us in getting people on our side. And I think her answer would be not that far if you're not very strategic about it. No, that's a good point. Yeah. And I, maybe I, this is... There's, ahead, there's yeah. definitely, you know, you, you... It feels very instinctive and reactive the way that people deploy that kind of stuff sometimes. Um, you know, it's like like kind of with those kids, it's like like the, that, were, that were harassing that, like, native fellow. Um that it was very, it was very just a sort of visceral reaction. I feel like, but I, um, and 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 it's as far as I can tell, wholly merited, despite the sort of Quillette Reason magazine pushback on that. Um, but at the end of the day, I think it's just it's like it's not a very powerful tactic. That's, um, you know, not probably not going to get you very far. You know, I guess my my attitude generally is that like. 
you you really don't need uh that many like like downscale white people to have a majority coalition and the number is lower every year um but <laughs> you know okay obama obama got a third of his election his coalition was white people without a college degree and you look at how he he ran against Mitt Romney he ran this like really pretty savage uh ant class war campaign it's like Mitt Romney's coming for your job Mitt Romney's a private equity wheeler dealer he's he's gonna he's gonna take your business apart and send your job to Mexico or whatever um in a way that kind of you know anticipates Trump a little bit um in terms of like the rhetoric you know and not not the the rhetoric on trade at least um, and like financialization. Uh, but you know, he, uh, I think that's a decent glimmering of a kind of model to be like, you, you know, just peel off. There's a, there's a hardcore people in this country that are totally, they're lost, you know, they're never going to vote for, uh, you know, Bernie or anybody else um because they're just they're just gonna like that that lady who it was like the last like the first time she had voted in her life and she was like 87 and and ailing and they took her to the polls and she voted straight Republican and then died immediately and I'm like <laughs> that that is like <laughs> kind of where a lot of people are at I'm afraid but I think that there there's a, maybe a critical mass of people who are kind of super enfranchised of people in like Pennsylvania and Michigan and um, Wisconsin, you know, to just be like, maybe they're probably not woke on race stuff at all. But like, at the other hand, they don't really care that much about it. And if you give them like a decent sort of class message, you know, maybe you could bring over the just the people you need to win those states. And I think that that, uh, you know, it's possible. And, you know, and that could be sort of a building block to be like in a coalition that would be like we are trying to redress the grievances of history, which would be, you know, class stuff and also some, you know, specific affirmative action things, reparation style, whatever you want, you know, like Native Americans. Jeez, like there's like, a lot yeah, of things well, to deal in with. There. <laughs> but I think the, the only group that's gotten reparations right is because of Korematsu there were reparations given to because of the Japanese internment but um, we haven't done that for any other group that's been um, harmed by the the history of systemic violence right like uh, I think if a Bernie uh, presidency exists there should be a lot of pressure there's been a bill that never gets to the floor every year in the house right for just doing research on on how uh, right like yeah, so I mean, literally, it's not even a bill about like here's the reparations that are owed. It's no, let's let's start a committee to do research into the. And you would think like the libertarians would love this shit because they're all about like debits and credits and like oh, what what is the actual <laughs> amount owed to what groups based on like the causal chain of so like that's actually what this is. It's like let's do some research and figure out what generations of systemic racism has done to populations and what they're owed. I mean, you can't get more libertarian justice than that shit. But like. You know, that won't even come up for a vote, you know? So, well, the, um, yeah, the, we, we got to push for that, for sure. Yeah. Maybe sure. President Harris can get it. <laughs> yeah. I think we we got to talk about Kamala Harris, right? Like, what we, we can't we can't end this discussion without bringing up her, her candidacy, right? So what, what do you think now that you've you've uh, thrown her hat into the discussion ring? What, what's uh, what are your thoughts on um, on her candidacy? Um, my thoughts. <laughs> sure, I I don't I don't really I don't really I don't really care what Ryan has to say. I hear what he has to say all the time. Um, I'm okay. I'll preface by saying this: I have very low standards for apologies. Like, just give me a half-ass apology, a half-ass explanation, and I'll take it, and we can move nice. on. So, Kamala Harris has a pretty hashtag problematic record, right? As DA of San Francisco, as California AG, you know, there was a great piece in the Atlantic by Hannah Georges. There was another great piece in the New York Times by Lara Bazelon, if any of your listeners are interested, that kind of outlined some of the decisions that she made as a DA 
that really kind of challenged this image, this image that she's crafting of her being a progressive DA, you know, when she was in power, you know, back in 2014. And I think she's tried to shift that narrative because Black Lives Matter had a huge impact on this country and how we talk about criminal justice issues. So she's trying to jump on the bandwagon, except that at the height of Black Lives Matter, Kamala Harris was still like a very carceral prosecutor. You know, like there's no two ways about it. Um, And like today she announced that she's running and I've heard that her motto is, or her slogan is for the people, which is what the California AG would open their, um, you know, like hearing (laughs) speeches with. So she's doubling down on the prosecutor image, super pro-law enforcement. I think she's going to try to do some spin like she did on her book. And I'm offended that she thinks so lowly of us that she thus far, and maybe it will change. I'm hopeful. Maybe it will change that she won't sort of address head on like these glaring issues in her record. Um, And so I'm really nervous going forward that like, if she doubles down the democratic establishment, which appears to very much like her will also double down and people will give her passes by saying things like we're putting this woman of color up to like a different double higher standard with no, you know, attention being paid to like the communities of color that her decisions impacted um, her like bragging about shutting down Backpage. Like, could we talk about the statistics of like sex workers of color, you know, like even in the face of like activists begging her to take a different approach she just so Kamala Harris how do I feel about it I I'm not giving up on her like I'm not giving up on the idea that she might figure out that she can't get away from this um and if she addresses it and gives like a somewhat convincing um just not even a justification if she can like distance herself from the decisions she made and can tell us how as a president she would be different mm. than she was as a prosecutor mm. i might be more open to some of the other good ideas that she's supporting like i understand that she's for medicare for all i understand that she apparently has said explicitly that she wants to address like the huge discrepancy in like maternal health for black women in this country which is hella mm. scary hella bad so yeah, I'm yeah. glad that she's out there talking about it, but yeah. I can't put blinders on. <laughs> yeah. um, so yeah. let's see. What do you guys so, think? <laughs> <laughs> I, that's I, that's very fair. Um, yeah, you know, you don't you don't want people, you know, you don't want to create the political incentive of just being like, unless you're perfect all the time, then uh, you know you you're just written off forever. But, yeah, as you say, at the same time, you know, you do want people to sort of explain where they're coming from so that they're not, you know, to sort of at least try to promise they're not just sort of flipping with the political winds, you know, as if they flip back the other direction and then, you know, it'll be back to throwing everyone in jail again. Um, Yeah, and I, I, uh, no, I suppose it's also worth worth noting that, um, you know, not, not only was uh Harris a you know very gonza well sort of average I would say not a super aggressive uh, DA or prosecutor but sort of in line with the the standard when it comes to you know prosecuting truancy and and uh you know drug offenses and stuff like that but at the same time when uh you know Steve Mnuchin's uh for foreclosure mill um one West. <laughs> One West, yes. What came up for, you know, I mean, ba- basically, like, this was one of the companies that was part of the great wave of crime that was, that was like, the housing bubble and the ensuing foreclosure crisis. She more or less just, like, let it slide, you know, which is also what everyone else was doing at the same time up to and including, you know, President Obama and, uh, and uh, you know, his secretary of or his attorney general. Um, 
both of them. And, um, yeah, so you hope that she'll sort of come, you know, come to Jesus or or somebody. (laughs) Yeah, and the One West story is real disturbing um, because it's not like, it's not like her office entirely ignored the issue and we're now, and we are now, you know, asking her, asking her to, to like, you know, show a negative to like explain to us why they didn't. It's, here's what happened. Like her investigators, line attorneys had like months of work. They found violations. The violations were easy to find because One West was so bad. They were formed in 2009 and they like ate up IndyMac. And I think they ate up some other, basically like they specialized in buying like really bad portfolios. And they were formed in 2009. So this is like, like they, yeah, for like a very specific reason, right? And so they would like sweep up these really bad portfolios and then be really aggressive about foreclosures. Like, I'm not pulling this out of my butt. You can find, like, there's good data that shows you just how bad One West was consistently. So it wasn't that hard for her investigators to put together a good case. And all she had to do was approve it. Like, the story is that she individually stopped her own, she ignored her own team's recommendation to press forward with a civil case against One West. And it's, like, really shady. And then, apparently, like, there are reports from, I think I've seen it at least in The Intercept, but maybe in other places, that Steve Mnuchin personally had donated something like $20,000 to her campaign in the weeks prior to her declining to press forward with the case which like maybe there's a connection maybe there's not but like god if it was any other financial institutions i might be i might be like i don't know you're right maybe the case was weak but with one west it was impossible to have a weak case like <laughs> it's just not possible so points. it's it sucks and, and it's it's not um, the case like with I think Cory Booker we could say game over there's no way we can as the left right support Cory Booker right because like he's still giving speeches on behalf of charter schools right like he's 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 just like so in the pocket of right the neoliberal Wall Street crowd that I, I don't just, whereas Kamala Harris has lots of bad signs but maybe there's a chance that she'll reverse course and own up to it and, and like you say, make a statement about the presidency that would, would mark, uh, uh, you know, divergence. But there is just this danger that, like, so many um, centrist liberals think that identity politics means, well, we can have the same terrible capitalist neoliberal policies as long as there's a person of color and a woman, like that's enough, right? That's the form of progress that they see. So, Hey, uh, there's a woman that's heading up the CIA progress. You know, we, we can now do violence to people, right? Like that, that's it. But, but you know, you would think that the same people here didn't think that when Sarah Palin was a VP, they didn't think, Oh, yay, feminism. Let's support Sarah Palin. Right. Some so of you do. would think that the, the logic could be kind of applied and, and like Stacey Abrams, way better right because actually the the people of color and the the marginalized groups will be helped by that candidacy right yeah and here's the other thing like if all my options are bad like if all my options are these really boring centrist liberals right right, really brands uh cory booker who's like okay on criminal justice actually and then uh, who's another boring one? Julian Castro. Oh my God, I almost oh <laughs> so boring. Him Brain and Kamala. If I had like four of the most boring Democrats the party could find, why would I pick the ex prosecutor out of all of them? If all other things are equal, you right, know. Right. So yeah. I don't know. I'm pre-stressed about this. I don't think it's going to end well. I've seen the comments on like you know I've like shared the articles about Kamala Harris on Twitter and just like the responses from Donut Donut Twitter make me want to like leave this world. But, you know, we'll see. Uh, Do- yeah. Donut Twitter is not, they're not that numerous. You know, they're, they're, uh, you, you look at, I've looked at the, you know, polls of uh, Democrats who dislike Bernie Sanders and it's like eight to 10% consistently, something like that. 
and all of them are in Twitter or or have journalism jobs. But <laughs> it gives you a little distorted perspective. Um, well, I think that 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 probably about wraps it up there. Um, Vanessa, anything you want to mention before you take off? I know you got a a show. Oh yes, we got a show coming. Uh, the Current Affairs Podcast is doing its first live show on Saturday, January 26th at the Rock and Roll Hotel in D.C. Um, you can find tickets on the Rock and Roll Hotel website or on Eventbrite. It's going to be fun. It's going to be weird because we're weird. <laughs> so there are going to be costumes, live music, more costumes. Nathan bought a volcano <laughs> with like gummies that will go inside of them anyway it's going to be a trip. amazing <laughs> um do you know what costume you're going to wear do you already have a costume i'm i am not wearing a costume but other maybe, people in the crew maybe will you be. should it's a big surprise though <laughs> right on. Um, everyone should everyone go everyone go. should buy tickets they should go they should subscribe to current affairs they should follow vanessa be on twitter yeah this is awesome what's your handle at uh dollar dollar bill that's right. It's D O L L A D O L L A B I L L E. You it's yeah, so yeah. long. Don't <laughs> don't you forget it. <laughs> well, thanks for having me on. I'm off to watch uh, the new season of The Bachelor. So nice, Excellent. enjoy. Godspeed. It's a virgin well, this year, so it's all they talk about. That's very exciting. <laughs> Excellent. So well, enjoy that. And you know, come back on and tell us how the bachelor went. You know, come come back on anytime, yeah. anytime you want. I'll keep you updated. <laughs> All right, good. Thank Thanks, you. Vanessa. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Last but not least, we have a friendly reminder that we have a Patreon. You can support the show with five dollars a month and get an extra episode every week. Uh, we really appreciate the support, and it helps us keep this going.